Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. Are there things from your childhood that your parents did or said or or things like that that you maybe at the time or maybe even now you look back and go, oh, I wonder wonder why they why they did that or or now I understand why they did that. No, not really. I feel like I was just, I just like took their instruction as a kid and didn't ask any questions about it. Or that's how I remember it. At least my parents might argue with me saying that, but, and now I feel like I just still follow the things that they told me (laughs) to this day. Like there, yeah, there are still places that my dad said that I shouldn't go when I was a little kid that I won't go now still. Oh my gosh. That is so What? That is like, even like as an adult, you won't do this. Even as an adult, like there's a corner store in the town I grew up in where my friend lived down the street. My dad said I should never go in that store <laughs> when I was a kid. And now I know it was because there was like ne'er-do-wells hanging out <laughs> in the store, but n- <laughs> probably not still this many years later. Yeah, probably but not. Like a, <laughs> yeah, years a couple later. years ago. Yeah. A couple <laughs> years ago, my mom was like, oh, pull over. I want to run in there and get lottery tickets. And I said, no, daddy said we can't go in there. <laughs> yeah. I love, yeah, I love like uh, mid-late 30s Vicky being like, no, dad said we couldn't, so we can't. Yeah, nope. <laughs> it's I don't, not a good place. I don't know. Yeah, I've been, I've been actually thinking about this for a little bit. I've been kind of staring at this prompt and... I, I am realizing that there are things that my, specifically my dad did when I was younger where I thought, uh-huh. what, just like, why are we doing this? Which I do now. And like really small uh-huh. things. My my dad was an electrician for many, many years. And so obviously very handy, but also really big into the conservation of energy. And oh. so things like obviously turning off the lights, like in every single room, make sure you turn off the light. It doesn't matter if you're going to be yeah. gone, like out of the room for 30 seconds and come back, turn it off. But <laughs> there are there are two uh, small things that I remembered. One is when you unplug something, yeah. where do you grab the plug? Oh, at the at the base, at the wall. At the base. Don't pull on the cord. Oh my gosh. I have mm-hmm. this like... I think that if I unplug something, you like ripping the cord out, yep. that I'm going to get electrocuted and die. I understand that's not how electricity works. I, I have installed things in my house. Like <laughs> I am actually pretty handy. But to this day, if I don't grab the base of something or if I see someone do it, I just cringe. I can't. Yeah. This one is really dumb. And I don't do this as much as I used to, but I used to have every single appliance that wasn't like a kitchen appliance, like every single... Uh-huh. Um, like my computer or printer or like even speakers or something like that. Yeah. Everything used to be plugged into a search bar. And to this day, many of those things are. If I actively yeah. wasn't using it, the search bar gets turned off because I have in this, my, my brain, my mm-hmm. dad basically it's told me so- that it's drawing so much energy. It's not. That it makes that much of a difference. So to this day, I turn search bars off so that it's not even drawing the little bit of energy that turns the light on. Yeah, well, you know, you're saving the planet. In that tiny way. Science is fascinating. But don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. So I prompted you, me, to think like our parents, or I guess essentially just realize that we are our parents. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, yeah. Not not just to lament the slow, inevitable passage of time. Wow, this is this is uplifting. 
<laughs> it's really, it's really, and I don't need, I feel like every time now that I think of my age or like things that I'm doing that are proving that I'm growing older, I think of you because of how much you bust me. Oh, no, we're in this About together. Yeah, we are not that far okay. apart. This is this is you and me together. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, and I, I actually, this, this time it wasn't even me because I, I really enjoy when I don't, I'm not actually the one who creates some of these prompts. Uh, we get them from one of our producers. Uh, and in this case, especially when the producer is a former colleague of ours. So let me bring in Jace Steiner. Hi, Jace. Hello. So Jace, can you help connect our prompt this week to science in general? Sure. I spoke to Angel Shu. She researches data-driven approaches to understanding environmental sustainability to show policymakers where they can best direct their efforts in responding to a city's rising temperatures. Wow. All right. So, and let's say, what would it be? An interdisciplinarian of environmental data science and policy. That's, that's a mouthful, but it's also like really, that's tough stuff. Yeah, Angel's fighting the good fight. She's particularly focused on comparing disparate heat stress burdens of major global and national cities. So like, where is it super hot? Who's experiencing all that heat? And how can a city respond to it? Oh, I can't wait to hear more. That sounds really important. I'm Angel Shu. I'm an assistant professor of public policy and the environment at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I also directed and found a research group called the Data-Driven EnviroLab, and we're an interdisciplinary research group, and we seek to innovate quantitative approaches to solving critical environmental challenges such as air quality, urbanization, and climate change. A major component of my work seeks to understand the intersection between urbanization and climate change, both how cities are impacted by it and how they contribute to it, but also how they may hold potential solutions to solving the climate crisis. Before I decided to do a PhD, I was working at a leading environment and climate change think tank called the World Resources Institute. And I was focused on developing greenhouse gas accounting and reporting programs in developing countries, Mexico, Brazil. I did a lot of work in China, India, the Philippines. And at the time, these countries were not being asked to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. This job was really left to develop countries to industrialize areas. But since you can't manage what you don't measure, and you can't manage well what you don't measure well, these countries recognized that they needed to get a head start in the face of eventual climate change regulation. And so it was in this work that I started to realize the importance of data to underpin sound climate and environmental policy decisions. So that's how I found myself in this nexus between science and policy, because I think it's so critical for us to have people that can translate between the two, who can understand the science, who can get the data and the numbers, but then also leverage it in a way that policymakers and people can really understand. Because at the end of the day, to make changes on climate change, it comes down to policies and people. So I think I get the need for data in order to write policy, but I'm guessing this direct focus on quantifying climate change patterns in ways policymakers are familiar with wasn't always in practice. Right. And realizing the effects of climate change are happening now and won't be stopping is relatively new to politicians. Yeah. And without actual data, politicians rely on what they can see, which as we know with climate science isn't really where the right research is being done, the right way to look at it. 
Nope. Climate change affects different parts of the world in different ways, often invisibly. An example of this is the urban heat island effect, a silent killer, as Angel puts it. So I asked her to give me a rundown on what exactly the urban heat island effect is and why it matters. The urban heat island effect, or UHI for short, is the phenomenon by which cities are warmer than their rural surroundings. And so when we measure it, when we come up with a metric for the UHI, it's the temperature difference between urban and rural areas. And it's typically measured at night. And so obviously during the day, it's going to be hotter. But what we're really concerned about is the fact that urban areas, they tend to have large amounts of impervious surfaces like concrete, asphalt, and these materials can absorb and retain heat. And so this is particularly relevant relevant at night when the sun is down and these materials, these urban structures, they can keep on and hold on to that heat and affect human health. But in addition to just the physical structures, the built environment, talking about asphalt and roads and buildings and concrete, also humans. Uh, so cities are density also of people, not just infrastructure. And so when you have transportation, people driving cars, motorcycles, other types of motorized vehicles, you've got factories and industry that are also generating and producing heat, that all contributes to the urban heat island effect. And did I mention air conditioning? They are sucking in air and then they're cooling the air inside. But then as a result, through the process of mechanical work, they're also generating heat that then can warm an urban environment. So it's both the infrastructure and also human density and population. Um, and then if you've all ever been in a crowd and walking amongst a, a mass of people, human bodies are also generating heat. It takes a lot of air conditioners to cool down a whole city of people. I mean, in my four-person apartment alone, we have four air conditioner units, one for each of our rooms. I didn't use air conditioners until I moved to New York. When I was setting mine up for the first time, I was so surprised at just how hot the exhaust air was. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's scorching. Cities are brutal in the summer. I mean, we're we're in D.C., and I, I love this area, but my biggest like complaint with the area is just how hot it is. And frankly, it's just one, due to just being hot because, you know, it's summer. But two, because of these man-made machines and infrastructure that are built to cool the inside, but consequently make the outside hotter. I wouldn't be able to survive without my air conditioner. I'm a wimp when it comes to heat. I get dizzy and sweaty so fast. But even if you're not a lightweight like me, urban summers are dangerous no matter your tolerance. There are a lot of people who have different individual and personal baselines when it comes to thermal comfort and how heat may affect them. And not maybe it doesn't result in heat stroke or dehydration, but there's been a lot of research and studies that have shown that heat is linked to loss of productivity, loss of mental focus and concentration. So there's a, a relevant metric here, which is called mean radiant temperature. And that's a measure of heat that's coming off of different urban structures. So buildings, you think about buildings being located close together and heat can radiate and bounce in between these structures. If you've ever walked along a road in summertime, you can actually feel that heat radiating off of asphalt and pavement. So this mean radiant temperature is more relevant for, for human health and it becomes intensified in an urban area. And with climate change, what we found through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which just completed its sixth assessment report this past year, that uh, heat waves and extreme heat and, and higher temperatures are expected to become more common. And so it's incredibly important also from a human health perspective to understand and research. So the urban heat island effect, UHI, can have direct and indirect impacts on human health and well-being. So the direct impacts could be heat-related illnesses such as heat exhaustion, heat stroke, 
dehydration and people who may be vulnerable to these types of health-related impacts would be particularly concerned. So we're talking about the elderly, people who are 65 or over. Actually, heat-related mortality is the highest amongst this particular age group. So something around 39% of deaths amongst elderly people are somehow related to heat. So that's according to the latest CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention Statistics. And heat can also affect other types of comorbidities or other diseases that could be exacerbated by heat. And so diabetes, is one example, cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease, these all can be triggered at elevated temperatures. And then also young children, so people who are under the age of five, whose bodies cannot regulate their temperatures as well, thinking about small babies, and I'm a mom to two small kids, ages three and five, I'm constantly trying to get my kids to drink water, but they often fight me. <laughs> and so they're they're not necessarily recognizing. And, and that's one of the problems with heat stroke is that it causes confusion and dizziness. And so you're not mentally as lucidly thinking during those times of stress. The heat in general is one of these silent killers. And yet it's not necessarily recognized or as much public health attention is called to heat as being one of these vectors of death in the same way that we hear about other events like uh, hurricanes and flooding and, and other natural disasters. particular anecdote I bring up when discussing urban heat. I went to Pompeii with my mom a few summers ago, and of course we went on a 90-something degree day with no clouds, no wind, blistering. My mom is obsessed with ancient Roman stuff, so we planned to and did end up spending six hours there. Pompeii used to be an urban area, but most of what's left is just the stone foundations. It's basically a giant pizza oven. I was good at the start, but after hours of walking and forgetting to hydrate, I was incoherent. I couldn't form full sentences and was barely able to put one foot in front of the other. My mom thought I was just being like a quiet and moody teenager. I wasn't able to tell her how I was feeling because I honestly couldn't put two and two together that I was on the brink of a heat stroke. It wasn't until we got back to our hotel room and I collapsed on the couch that we realized how serious it was. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's... So, I, mean, I mean, you're here, but like that's that's <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so ultimately okay. I was fine. <laughs> yeah, no, that's um, no, it, it's wild. We recently actually just discussed in an episode like had we ever passed out or anything. And I came real close at a baseball game once. Similar thing. So yeah, it's it's nothing to mess around with. No, for sure. And like I was able to get back into air conditioning, nap it off, and I was fine. But not everyone has that respite, and this kind of heat is what they experience at home, not just abroad as a tourist. So I think about the 2003 European heat wave, which the ministers and all the policymakers were basically asleep at the wheel when that disaster happened. And so they were not trained to recognize the risks of heat-related illness and what that actually looked like. So now they've done these epidemiological studies and gone back and tried to attribute heat-related deaths to that particular event. And it's something as high as 70,000 deaths now they think were actually related to that single event alone. So what methods do you use to study the urban heat island effect and the community's response to it? There are many ways that you can study the urban heat island effect. The most traditional way is just to use data from monitoring or weather stations. And most cities have these and they may have several of them or they may have them located in areas where they actually are away from cities. And so in Chapel Hill, where I am in North Carolina, most of the weather data that we get on our phones 
comes from a weather station that is located at the airport. But as I mentioned earlier, that's not necessarily where people are being affected by the urban heat island effect. And if people are living in a dense urban area, if they're downtown, if they're in a neighborhood, they could be several hundred meters or yards or even miles away from the closest weather station. And so if they check their phones, it doesn't necessarily mean that the readings that they're getting from weather.com or from their app are necessarily coming from where they're living. And so it's been difficult to try to really understand what the impact is of the urban heat island effect of higher temperatures to individuals and individual health because of the sparsity of these monitoring stations located maybe next to or adjacent to an urban area. And so one of the approaches that we've been employing has been to use satellite remote sensing. So the good news is that satellites have on board these sensors that can collect all types of environmental data. And so that's heat coming from different surfaces, from trees, from water, from paved surfaces. And because satellites are constantly orbiting the planet, some of them are even overpassing the same point once a day. And so you can get daily measurements then of surface temperature. So while it may seem more direct to measure city temperatures from weather stations on the ground, even they have bias, that's why using satellite data, which can collect temperature data multiple times a day across the whole city and surrounding areas, provides a clearer map of where the urban heat island effect is and isn't taking place, right? Right. And using these temperature maps that Angel and her team have collected, they can start to make connections between rising temperatures and vulnerable populations. So then you can start to get a sense of variation across the city of where temperatures might be higher, where it might be lower. And so that's been a huge innovation in allowing us to then be able to understand within a city how heat land surface temperature might vary across an area. So by land cover, looking at temperatures above parks, water bodies, grasslands, and then also different paved surfaces, concrete sidewalks, and then also black asphalt pavement, and then also buildings. It's been incredibly power- powerful for us to be able to evaluate these, these variations across land services, but also across populations. So we know by household and by census tract where people live, what their demographics is, what's their income, what's their age, what's their race and ethnicity. And then combining that with the satellite remote sensing data, then we can start to really look at patterns and trends and who's being exposed where and to what extent. Using the satellite remote sensing data, then we can start to answer some of those questions of, is it unequal for people living in different parts of a city? I mean, I think that's one question that we certainly as a scientist want to interrogate. I mean, I think anecdotally, we hear some of these stories about racist historic policies like redlining, where you had minority communities that were relegated into some parts of cities that were considered hazardous or declining, and that prevented them from accessing loans that would have allowed them to move into better areas of cities that are more shaded, have access to better urban amenities that perhaps are less dense, that have higher levels of tree cover that would all make them cooler. So Jeremy Hoffman at university, I think he's at the Virginia Museum. He has done a lot of the the early research using primarily weather station data, air temperature data that's measured and and looking at patterns. And and that's certainly what he saw in redline cities that there seems to be patterns of people in these declining or these more hazardous areas are exposed to higher temperatures. But then the, the larger question is, okay, well, is this just something that's happening in Redline in cities that were redlined, 
or is this something that's wider and systemic? And so using the satellite remote sensing data, then we can start to ask those kinds of questions. And so that's exactly what my research group did for all 497 urbanized areas in the US because we have that data, then we can start to look at these patterns. And so what we found is that the problem is, ac is actually more systemic and it goes beyond just cities that were redlined. And so we published a paper in Nature Communications in 2021 that just looked at the 175 cities in the US with a population over a quarter million. But we do have a Google Earth Engine app where you can look at data for all 497 urbanized areas. We just thought from a policy and communication perspective, it might be easier to just talk about major cities that people might be familiar with rather than small, smaller cities and towns across America. But the results were really surprising Surprising. What we found is that in 97% of these cities, people of color were being exposed to higher levels of urban heat and temperatures than their white counterparts. And then if you looked at income, we also found similar patterns. In 94% of cities across America, we found that people living below poverty were exposed to higher levels of urban heat than wealthier counterparts. And so to me, that seems to suggest that this issue is more systemic. There have been, been policies and practices that are still going on today that are leading to these dis, disproportionate exposures to urban heat. And we're also finding these patterns to be similar across cities globally as well. So this isn't just a uniquely American problem, but in Europe, in cities like Copenhagen, which is often touted as being this paragon of environmental sustainability in the bicycle kingdom, they are also burdening poor populations, poor neighborhoods within the city with higher levels of urban heat. And so um, we, we just updated the data. So if you go to the website, or I'm happy to share this because you might want, if you're doing anything on the web, then you can also include one of these maps. But it's also quite, um, it's quite surprising. So nearly half, so actually more than half, 119 out of 280 cities that we have this metric for are disproportionately burdening lower income cities and, and citizens with higher levels of urban heat. And in, in cities where we're not seeing this type of exposure for poorer populations, it's in cities that are in developing countries where a lot of the populations within cities are actually wealthier than their rural counterparts. I assume that once you have the data, that's when you can start seeing patterns. Right. In this case, a pattern showing that those who experience disproportionately higher temperatures are more often in America and Europe poor and people of color. Well, that's disturbing, but hopefully the embarrassment of underperforming in your sustainability efforts pressures policymakers to address these disparities. So when I started on this project, it was right after 2015 when the UN had just adopted these 17 global goals, the sustainable development goals. And then looking at all the indicators that they specified, I noticed that they were not defined in a spatially explicit way that would allow for you to then evaluate whether or not cities are actually being inclusive in their sustainability efforts. So then I thought, well, there's a huge opportunity given this big data revolution and just so much satellite remote sensing data that's coming online every single day. Why are we not using that in a policy context to measure the sustainable development goals? I found some papers written by a colleague, Glenn Sheriff, who had spent many years at the EPA. He's an environmental economist. Now he's an associate professor at Arizona State University. 
in the School of Sustainability. And um, he had written a lot about how you actually measure environmental justice using these metrics of distribution and, and trying to understand how different environmental goods or amenities might be affecting different populations. And it, and it really does come down to this idea of a Gini coefficient, which is traditionally used to evaluate income equality at a national level. And so countries can use it to look at the distribution. Who has the most income? Do you have wealth that is evenly distributed across a, a population? And it's based on this idea of a Lorentz curve, which is a graphical representation of the distribution of income or wealth in a population. So it shows how much the total income or wealth is held by different portions of the population ranked by the poorest all the way to the richest. Basically, if you think about, if you have on one axis, the different proportions of the population, and then you have on the y-axis, the distribution of income, if it was equally distributed, you would have a 45 degree line intersecting or bisecting these two axes. But then for most countries, income is not evenly distributed. And so it ends up looking like a curve below this line of 45 degree perfect equality. And then the Gini coefficient then is just dividing the area between this Lorentz curve and this diagonal line of perfect equality. So that's mathematically how you then calculate it. And so what we did working with Glenn was to think about, well, can we adapt this type of methodology to evaluate not the distribution of income, but the distribution of environmental harms and benefits across an urban area? So it's using the exact same idea. So if you had air pollution, so if we think about particulate matter, if that's distributed amongst every segment of the population, each neighborhood equally, we'd expect then for it to plot this 45 degree of perfect equality. But then if it's burdening poor populations, then we might see this curve go above that line of perfect equality. And if it goes below, then it's burdening then more of the wealthier populations below that curve. And so if we could then adapt that, it might resonate more with the public and policymakers because they have some idea, okay, they can see, oh, this 45 degree line. And then we thought the visual representation of this curve could be really powerful in being able to communicate inequality. And so that's that's really the sweet spot of my research and my group. It's it's not just, I mean, there's a lot of very complicated math and a lot of complicated economics that you can do, but then I'm really interested at the end of the day of, well, how can we actually motivate policy change? Have you seen a difference in how different governments across the world respond to this information and how they use it to change their policy? In the summer of 2021, right when I actually moved to the Raleigh-Durham Triangle area here in North Carolina, I got engaged with the Museum of Life and Science here, which is based in Durham. They had applied for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric uh, Administration, to send them these sensors that they could mount on top of vehicles and bicycles and engage citizens to do high-resolution heat mapping within the city of Raleigh and Durham County. And so I got involved in that campaign, and it was just incredible to see. They had something like 100 volunteers come and volunteer their time and drive around <laughs> Raleigh and Durham at three times a day in the morning, in the afternoon, and then also in the evening to collect this data. So I got so inspired. I said, we should do this for Chapel Hill and engage citizens. So we got the town of Chapel 
Chapel Hill on board and also Museum of Life and Science, we asked the chief resilience officer, John Richardson, in Chapel Hill to say, if we were going to do this campaign on one day, what would be the neighborhoods that you've identified as being potentially the most vulnerable to extreme heat or climate change and high temperatures? And thankfully, Town of Chapel Hill, they had already been thinking about this and they developed a vulnerability map and they identified five neighborhoods where there is a high concentration of people low tree cover and high built environment. And so on an incredibly hot day, August 28th of 2021, we had 40 volunteers, primarily students, and they took out handheld pocket lab sensors. These are consumer grade sensors that could measure air temperature and humidity every second. And then we could combine it with remote sensing data on land cover, land surface temperature, and other types of data, and train machine learning models to then develop high resolution maps that could give us at 10 meter resolution. So that's much better than that one kilometer spatial resolution that the satellites often can give you to get a much more fine grained look at individual exposure to temperature and also heat stress. The city of Raleigh and the, and the sustainability office, they were able to, to see, okay, where are areas that are hot spots of heat and that are relatively warmer and hotter compared to other parts of the city. And they found that there were some roadways that were particularly hot and would affected communities living around them. So very shortly after the city of Raleigh voted to allocate $77,000 to covering those roadways with titanium oxide, which is a very reflective material that could help to reduce the amount of heat in those areas. And so to me, that's just such a fantastic example of how data, high resolution data on heat and urban heat island immediately led to decision makers making a policy and, and deciding to do something about it and then mobilizing the city to then allocate resources. That part about citizen science is pretty cool. It's so satisfying to see the direct effects of the temperature data volunteers presented to the city leaders and the proper allocation of resources that will reduce heat stress going forward. Yeah, sometimes data collection is just as simple as asking uh, a neighbor to bike around town with a thermometer. Okay, maybe not always quite that simple. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that sounds great. I I bike around everywhere, so I would definitely love doing that. But... (laughs) <laughs> oh this is see this is why i love like not live radio it's fantastic um <laughs> yeah they, they didn't like my idea of biking around town either with they a thermometer like, eh. i know i know <laughs> but seriously there was a there was definitely a lot of coordination involved not just in raleigh but for angel and her team to create these comprehensive heat and demographic maps Definitely. And I just want to plug, because sometimes it can be tricky to visualize this data, these graphs, like a Lorentz curve, the Gini coefficient. It can be hard to do that. So if you go to our website in the description for this episode, I've included a couple links that take you to Angel's website, like her teams, where they've uploaded some links and a couple images by their visualization team of their data in their graphs and their maps and all that good stuff. So definitely recommend checking that out. I love a good plug. Uh, And I think with that, that is all from Third Pod from the Sun. Big thank you to Angel for sitting down with us and sharing her incredible work. This episode was produced by Jace with audio engineering from Colin Warren and artwork also by Jace. Thanks for doing double duty this week. And be sure to head over to the Carry the Two podcast next week for more from Angel on the math and stats front. 
We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. So please rate and review us and you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all. And we'll see you next week. Do you hear that music? Yeah. Yeah, what is that? That's just someone's car. No, every single day, at least a couple times, someone will be blasting music so loud from their car that it will shake the cars nearby and cause all their horns to go off. So there's like a solid minute where it's just like super loud music and then like 10 car horns. Oh my gosh. All the time. That's amazing. That's like a real classic city thing.